one of the most vivid memories I have took place on a summer morning in 2006. I was sitting at a desk staring at the LSAT, the law school admission test, and I kept thinking, this test will determine the rest of my life, which is not a great strategy for test taking. Uh, ten minutes into it, I think I'd answered only one question. And I wound up doing okay, but I really let this test get into my head, which was pretty dumb because the truth is that test didn't wind up determining the rest of my life. Now, for one thing, I wound up retaking it, so that first score didn't matter one whit. And for another, I don't even practice law anymore. So, so, what, so the test was basically irrelevant for my life. But when we think of tests, we probably think of that kind of test, tests that we take in school or tests we take to get into school, which can seem really consequential, but which later really don't seem quite as important. But today we're going to talk about a test which can prove massively consequential in our lives. A test not administered with pen and paper, but rather the test of temptation. A test which really can alter the course of our lives. And we're going to talk about temptation today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to see an intense test that was put to the Lord Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. And we're going to see that Jesus prevailed in this test. We're going to see his example of facing down temptation, which is an example that we are called to follow, each one of us. We'll see this today in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which I think is one of the richest and most thought-provoking and practical texts in the whole Bible. I've got five points this morning. I'm not going to list them for the sake of time. If you've got a bulletin, you can see what they are. My first point today is this. God sent Jesus into testing, and God sends us into testing too. Last week we saw that after 30 plus years of living quietly in Nazareth near his family, doing construction work, suddenly Jesus dropped everything and he headed south to the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing people who were confessing their sins. And Jesus came to be baptized even though he didn't have any sins to repent of. Jesus came because he understood that he's the Messiah. And God had established John's ministry not just to preach repentance, but also so that by John's baptism, the Messiah would be revealed. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus was baptized. As he emerged from the water, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit, looking like a dove, descended on him. And a voice spoke from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the clearest statement thus far in this book about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. And now we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I think there's three things we've got to see in this verse. Number one, Jesus is led by the Spirit. The Spirit who has just come upon Jesus now directs Jesus' path. And that's not surprising. We said last week that from all eternity, Jesus is God the Son. But Philippians 2 tells us that God the Son humbled himself to become a real human being. And indeed, Jesus generally lived like an ordinary human. Now, indeed, there are moments in Jesus' ministry where he will lean on his divine powers. But that, I think that's the exception rather than the rule. And this is vitally important because it explains to us why the Bible holds Jesus up as our example. Now, the Bible tells us Jesus is our example in obedience. 1 John 2 says, The one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Jesus is our example in love. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this. 
He laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. And Jesus is our example in service. John 13, 15, he says, If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And Jesus is our example in leadership. In Matthew 20, he'll say, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He's our example in suffering. 1 Peter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He's our example in forgiveness. Colossians 3 says, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you must forgive. And we'll see today that Jesus is our example in overcoming temptation. But sometimes I think the truth of Jesus' deity can make us wonder, how can Jesus really be our example? Because he's God, and I'm not. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't relate to Jesus' example. Because Jesus was a man, as well as God. Jesus lived as an ordinary human. He lived a life of faith and obedience. He lived a life led by the Holy Spirit. And in that, he is our example, believing friends, because we are indwelt by the same Spirit. We also are called to lives of faith and obedience. And so we can and must look to how Jesus lived as an example for us to follow. And so the Spirit leads Jesus. The Gospel of Mark tells us this leading was quite intense. Mark 1.12 says the Spirit immediately after his baptism drove him into the wilderness. What's significant about the fact that Jesus goes to the wilderness? Well, in the Bible, the wilderness repeatedly is a place of testing and preparation. The most significant figures from every part of the Bible wound up spending significant time in the wilderness before God used them mightily. Here you get a picture of part of the wilderness in the area, general area, about uh, where Jesus probably uh, is being driven. And you can see it's a pretty rocky, desert, unpleasant-looking place. And like I said, almost every significant figure in the Bible winds up at some point in the wilderness. Moses committed murder. He fled into the wilderness. For 40 years, he lived with a nomadic tribe there before God called him to service. David, the man who would be king, fled from Saul into the wilderness before he took the throne. Prophet Elijah wound up living in the wilderness initially in 1 Kings 17 before the great showdown at Mount Carmel. And then after seeing God's victory at Carmel, Elijah's faith failed him and he went back into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before the rest of his ministry. John the Baptist emerged from the wilderness to begin his ministry. The Lord Jesus, began uh, before he began his ministry, went into the wilderness. And even the Apostle Paul, after the Damascus Road, says he went into Arabia in Galatians 1. I mean, here we have the, the, the author of the Pentateuch, the great king, the great prophet, John the Baptist, who Jesus is the greatest of, of, of all humans up to that point. The Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, all of them go to the wilderness before God uses them. The desert is the place of preparation and testing. And sometimes I think we wind up in a desert place of sorts. We may feel marginalized and secluded and dry and alone and tired, and we may think, why am I here? Am I in the will of God? And sometimes we think I'm not in the will of God when we suffer because we we have inadvertently and subtly adopted prosperity theology. We think, well, if I'm in the will of God, everything should be coming up roses for me, and it's not. But friends, the biblical pattern is that if we want God to use us in a real way, corporately or individually, 
we should expect at first we're going to spend some time in the wilderness being prepared and being tested. And that's where all these major figures in the Bible got their starts. And more than that, so did the nation of Israel. God said in Hosea 11, 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. And we said a few weeks ago, initially he was talking about Israel. In the Exodus, God called Israel out of Egypt. He made them into a nation. And the Apostle Paul explains what happened next in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Our fathers, Israel, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. After leaving Egypt, Israel had a baptism of sorts. They walked through the Red Sea, which God opened before them. They followed God's leading, who appeared to them as a pillar of cloud and fire. And God faithfully led them across the wilderness. But Israel grumbled terribly about their food, about being thirsty. And after a long stop at Sinai, eventually God led them to the border of the Promised Land. Now what happened? Israel rebelled. In faithless fear, they refused to take what God had sworn to give them. And God said to them in Numbers 14, You shall bear your iniquity forty years you shall know my displeasure. Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. God sentenced Israel to wander the wilderness for forty years until the rebellious generation died out, until the next generation was ready. And how were they made ready? In the wilderness. We see that in a sermon given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. Now, Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is a really important passage for us this morning. Because as we look at Jesus' temptation today, we're going to see that three times Jesus quotes from this sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 6 through 8, Moses spoke to the generation who would conquer the promised land. And he said some important things. First, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one most important statement on the unity of God and the whole Bible. He follows that up with this in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The greatest commandment. And then Moses said this in chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you. Listen to this. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. See, the wilderness was not just a place of punishment for the rebellious generation. It was a period of testing for the younger generation, which would reveal what was in their heart. Would they obey the Lord? Did they love God? Or would they fail like their fathers had? Well, now in Matthew 4, the Spirit likewise leads Jesus into the wilderness. And we saw in Matthew 2 that what God said about Israel, now He says about Jesus, Out of Egypt I called my son. And He did. Like Israel, Jesus came up out of Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus went through the waters of baptism. And like Israel, now Jesus goes into the wilderness. Not for 40 years like Israel did, but for 40 days. We'll see in verse 2 of our passage. And why must he go there? Matthew says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We need to know, friends, today that the Bible tells us that Satan is real. He is not a myth. He is not the literary fictional personification of evil. No, he is a real personal being. He is immensely powerful and cunning and dangerous. He is not a god. He is not God's equal. But he does exercise 
powerful dominion over this fallen world. Unbelievers unwittingly do his bidding. And he is, in the words of 1 Peter, the believer's enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here at the very start of his ministry, the Spirit drives Jesus into an encounter with Satan to endure temptation from him. That may shock us. You may say, I thought God doesn't tempt people with evil. How could God lead Jesus into the place of temptation? And I think we need to think with some precision about this question. And the best place to do that is in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is a chapter about facing trials or tests, which in Greek comes from the verb pyrazo. Pyrazo means a test that is used to reveal the genuineness of something. And in the first 12 verses of his book, James tells us that God allows us to face testing so that we respond to the hardships of life by faith and thus develop the spiritual virtue of steadfastness, which prepares us for eternal glory. It also teaches us to rely on God's wisdom. It also teaches us not to boast in ourselves or our position in life. It also teaches us that as we succeed in facing tests, we receive eternal rewards. That's the first 12 verses of the book. But then James says, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now the verbs translated tempt here are also the verb pyrazo, which I just told you usually means testing. What James is doing here is he is telling us there is a particular form of testing, the testing with evil, temptation, the inducement to sin, which works in a unique way. God may allow us to encounter temptation as a test in this life. That's what happens to Jesus here in Matthew 4. God leads him into it, we're told. But when we face the scenario of temptation, we must remember that God is never the being who says to us, indulge in sin. That prompting always comes from the world or the flesh or the devil. God never incites us to sin. God may cause us or permit us to face a test of temptation, but he is never the tempter. In fact, we'll see later today that God is in fact the one who is faithful to provide us with the resources to withstand temptation, who provides us faithfully with the way to escape temptation. And so temptation is a unique form of testing. And unlike my experience with the LSAT, I would tell you that temptation is a test which really can't alter the course of our lives. Now, you might have trouble believing that. You might say, well, I face temptation all the time. It doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Maybe you might even think, I succumb to temptation all the time. What's the big deal? It doesn't seem to have an immediate or substantial effect on us. But friends, understand this. The Bible tells us temptation is a difficult test and a consequential test. It's difficult because temptation can be hard to spot. And when it defeats us, it can generate real catastrophic consequences. Look at James chapter 1, verse 14. Here James speaks of temptation as a lure or an enticement. These are Words that come from the world of hunting and fishing in his day. Temptation is like a baited trap. It's like a lure on a fishing line. It looks tasty. We want to get up close and look at it. It draws us in and then bang, the, the trap is sprung and we are ensnared. The result is ruinous. Look at James 1.15. He says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation is not a fun thing to mess with. Oh, it will present itself that way, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. 
If we saw sin as God sees it, and if we saw the chaos that it threatens to produce in our lives and the lives of people we love, we would never be drawn to it. It's the deceptiveness of temptation that allures us. It draws us in. And for a moment, while we're thinking we're just admiring the fire, before we know it, we're being burned. Friend, don't play games with temptation. Temptation is like playing Russian roulette. You may seemingly survive round after round and say, my life hasn't been disrupted yet. But you never know when it's going to come out of the chamber. You never know when it's going to be something that can wind up destroying your life. Think of the person who goes out for a fun evening and winds up drunkenly driving and kills someone. The adulterer whose children are left wondering, why are mommy and daddy getting divorced? We don't usually think about consequences like that when we're playing games with temptation. But if we forget to weigh the consequences, we won't perceive the danger of the temptations we encounter in life. And we will fall. So be warned, friends. Temptation is a serious and a consequential test. And Jesus tells us later in this book, it is a test that we should pray that God would protect us from. Lead us not into temptation. Shield us from facing this sort of severe test, the sort of test that Jesus faces here. As Israel was once tested for 40 years in the wilderness to display what was in their heart and failed, now Jesus is tested 40 days in the wilderness by Satan the tempter to reveal what is in Jesus' heart, to reveal his authenticity, and to prepare him for years of ministry in which he will face numerous tests and temptations. And so now the test begins as we come to our second point in which Satan tempted Jesus to cut corners and to avoid waiting on God's provision or timing, which is something we're tempted to do too. Satan now tries to induce Jesus to sin. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. After his baptism, Jesus was led right into the wilderness. But Satan didn't approach him then. He waited. For 40 days, during a time which Jesus was fasting, for reasons we'll talk about in a minute. Only after this fast does Satan approach Jesus. See, Satan sees Jesus' humanity as a vulnerability. Satan thinks in Jesus' bodily fatigue he can be tripped up. And so Satan approaches and he says first, if you are the Son of God. Now, Jesus knows he's the Son of God. In fact, not only does he know it, the voice of the Father just attested it. What's more, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout this book, when Jesus encounters various demons, they say, oh, you're the Son of God, or have you come to torment us? They recognize him. There's no question that Jesus is the Son of God. So why does Satan start with this conditional statement? Because it's the basis of his attack. In his deity, Jesus is endlessly powerful. But in his humanity, Jesus is hungry and fatigued. And Satan wants Jesus to solve his human problems using his divine powers. Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, why are you sitting out here hungry? If you're really the Son of God, you participated in creating the world from nothing. If you're really the Son of God, use your creative powers and feed yourself. Turn these rocks into bread. That's the idea. And you say, well, what's so sinful about making bread? Bread is not a sinful thing to make, even if it has carbs. Why, though, is Satan's statement a temptation? I think the hook in this inducement may seem well concealed. Where is the sin? 
The easiest way to understand why Satan's proposals in this chapter are sinful is to focus on how Jesus answers them. Because what Jesus does when he faces these temptations is he quotes the scriptures, which serve to expose the true nature of Satan's temptation by shining the clear light of God's truth on Satan's lie. So what does Jesus say here? Matthew 4, 4. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is from Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses tells the Israelites that God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel's experience eating manna in the wilderness proved a point. Life is about more than physical comfort and instant gratification. In their pride and grumbling, the wilderness generation didn't grasp this. But humility recognizes the truth that what is most important in life, what's even more important than meeting our physical needs, is our obedience to God's Word. And God the Spirit has now led Jesus into the wilderness to recreate this situation of hunger in Israel's history. And Jesus is aware that God has placed him in a location where there is no food. Jesus can clearly see it is the will of God that he is to forego food for this season. His fasting is an act of obedience to God's direction because he understands what Deuteronomy 8 says, that obedience is more important than having your physical needs met. And so Jesus is fasting. He's waiting on the Father to provide him with food or to have the Spirit lead him out of the wilderness. But in the midst of this obedience, Satan says to Jesus, your stomach's growling, haven't you noticed? You've got all these powers as God. Curb your hunger. Feed yourself. He's tempting Jesus to lean on his divine powers that he's chosen not to ordinarily live by in his incarnation. To use them to escape this situation the Father and the Spirit have put him in. In which he is dependent on God's provision and timing. To use his powers to escape the consequences of the Spirit leading him into the wilderness. To avoid the hardship the Father has intended him to endure. And I think this is a temptation that is still common to us today, friends. The temptation to decide we don't want to live out the situation God has put us in. We don't want to live out God's will for our lives, whether it's evidenced in our circumstances or even just what God has revealed to us in the Bible. We decide, I'd rather have something else. And I'd rather have it when I want it. Tell you, I succumbed to this temptation in college. I remember being very angry at God back then because I told God, here's some things I expect that you're going to give me. And when he didn't, I decided I did not accept God's decision. What God wouldn't give, I would take. And I proceeded to make about four years of some really terrible decisions until God mercifully saved me. But I think that's a common experience, isn't it? In some ways, I think it's like the very first temptation. Think about Genesis 1. God made everything. And God said that it was good, right? But in Genesis 3, when Eve looks at the tree, Eve says... That's good for food. That's good for my eyes. Eve determined what was good for her. She wasn't interested in hearing God's determination. And when we start thinking like that, that we are the arbiter of what is good for us, we're not far from disaster. We may know that God says don't get drunk, but man, we want to. We may know that God says sex is for one man and one woman and one lifelong marriage, but we want something else. We may know that God says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we want to cheat on our taxes. We resist God's determination of the good because we don't believe that God knows better for us 
than we do. We disbelieve and so we disobey. And we don't trust God's timing or provision. Not only do we want what God has withheld, but we want it now. We forget the truth of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Do you want the best life you can have? Trust God and obey Him. The life that follows from that will be the best life you could ever have. It may not be what you dreamt up. You'll be happy in the end it wasn't. Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Psalm 37 says, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. Friends, resist the urge to seize what God has withheld, or to speed what God has slowed, or to take what God has forbidden. He knows better than we do. And instead of focusing on what God has withheld, instead of even focusing first on what we may legitimately physically need, Instead, give first priority to knowing and obeying God's Word. That's what Jesus' quotation here means. Psalm 119, which speaks of God's Word, tells us that by God's Word, our eyes are turned from looking at worthless things, and we receive life in His ways. By it, we are strengthened. By it, a young man can keep his way pure. By it, we will not be put to shame. And Jesus doesn't just say, that obedience to God's word is more important than physical comfort. He demonstrates it because he resists the temptation to break his fast and escape the wilderness by quoting and wielding God's word, which Ephesians 6 tells us is the sword of the spirit. He shows us how it's done by countering the attacks of the evil one, exposing them by plainly speaking God's truth. And so Jesus rejects the inducement to cut corners and use his powers to create food contrary to God's provision and timing. But Satan is not done. And we see this in our third point. Satan now tempted Jesus to test God, and he tempts us that way too. Jesus has thwarted the first temptation by quoting the scriptures to Satan. Now Satan puts a second temptation to Christ, and this time it's Satan who starts by quoting the scriptures. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is one of the more troubling truths we find out about Satan in the Bible. He doesn't just tempt unbelievers with the sins of the flesh and the world. He also attacks God's people by twisting the Scriptures. Here we read that Satan took Jesus into Jerusalem to the pinnacle of the temple complex. Josephus, who saw the temple in the first century, records that the top of the temple's southern wall was very high. And it towered not just over Jerusalem, but beneath it was a ravine, the lowest point in the city. Josephus says the distance from the top of the wall to the bottom was so vast you couldn't even see the bottom by leaning over to look at it. And it's probably to this point that Satan brings Jesus. And Satan challenges Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, why don't you jump? Now, that doesn't sound very tempting, does it? Why does Satan think that Jesus would jump? Does Satan think that Jesus is suicidal? No, this is not a temptation to suicide. Instead, Satan quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11. Psalm 91 is a passage in which the psalmist speaks of the one who sees the Lord as my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And in this passage, the psalmist says, the Lord will protect the person who trusts in Him, even to the point that God will make sure His people uh, don't 
stumble over a stone and fall, that he will send his angels to guard them. And Satan's logic here is this. Jesus, God says in the Bible, he will protect his people. How much more should that be true of you if you're the son of God? There should be no way that the Father will allow you to face peril. But maybe these are empty words. Let's see if God really has your back. Let's find out. Make God prove that he's going to defend you. Take a step of faith. It's biblical. Let's see if God will keep his word. Satan wants Jesus to take what seems to be a step of faith and obedience to the Bible to seek reassurance that the Father will really protect him from harm. By creating a situation in which if Jesus really is the Messiah, which he is, the Father will have to deliver him or else Jesus will plummet to his death and destroy the Father's plan. But Satan's scheme falls flat. Matthew 4, 7. Jesus said to him again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' response here shows us that not every quotation of Scripture is authoritative. You might say, oh, that sounds like heresy. Think about it. Satan quotes the Scriptures in service to a lie. And Jesus does not obey Satan's scriptural appeal. Why not? Because sometimes people twist the Scriptures. 2 Peter 3.16 tells us that false teachers do that. Satan does too. And when someone twists the Scriptures, they have no valid authority. Say, what does it mean for someone to twist the Scriptures? I think there's two good ways to think about this. First, people twist the Scriptures by taking verses out of context. Probably the most quoted Bible verse today is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. It's everyone's favorite verse these days because people think that by quoting this, somehow they become immune from ever being validly confronted about sin in their life. The problem is if you read the context of Matthew 7, what you'll discover is that within five verses, Jesus tells his followers, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Jesus is calling certain people dogs and pigs, which within Jewish culture is calling them unclean. More than that, he is commanding his disciples to be discerning about other people and to determine that other folks sometimes are themselves dogs and pigs who we should behave differently around. If that's not making a judgment, what is? See, Matthew 7, 1, out of context, sounds like we're never to make any conclusion about what other people are doing. But in its context, we'll see in a few weeks. Matthew 7, 1 is actually a prohibition against hypocrisy, not against rendering judgments generally. But by wrenching this verse out of context, today many people have made this warning against hypocrisy into a slogan for licentiousness. They've twisted the scriptures. Second, people can twist the scriptures by taking a set of verses and trying to set them against the rest of the Bible. I remember a few years ago I was ministering in another context and we were dealing with a pretty serious situation that called for the painful but necessary exercise of church discipline. And other church leaders were trying to prevent that discipline from happening by quoting biblical passages about love, as though those verses somehow were in opposition to the verses about discipline. I remember being bluntly told by a leader in that church, you have your verses and we have our verses. That sort of attitude is what I'm talking about here. Twisting the scriptures is taking one set of verses and turning them against the rest of the Bible. As though somehow God does not speak consistently throughout the whole book that he has inspired. Manufacturing seeming contradictions to avoid obedience is twisting the scriptures. It's a satanic hermeneutic we see here. 
And anytime someone twists the scriptures, our response should not be to obey them. Our response to be should to expose them. Now, Satan here is twisting the scriptures. First, he's quoting Psalm 91 out of context. Yes, Psalm 91 speaks of God protecting his people, but it does not teach prosperity theology. It does not teach that the godly will avoid all trouble. On the contrary, Psalm 91.15, God says of the godly, I will be with him in trouble. Trouble still befalls the godly. In fact, the troubles that God pr promises to defend the godly from in this psalm are described in verse 8 as the recompense of the wicked. So Psalm 91 is God promising to deliver his people from judgments he will pour out on the wicked. But Satan has taken lines from that psalm and tried to make it sound like God has promised that he will give all of his people an endless good time and they'll never have any trouble. Which we know is false anyway because Jesus is heading to the cross and his apostles are heading to martyrdom. So Satan is twisting the scripture by taking it out of context. But second, Satan is twisting Psalm 91 by using it in a way that is contrary to the rest of the Bible. And this is the point that Jesus makes as he quotes the Bible back to Satan. Specifically, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And Massah, Israel was thirsty, and they grumbled in Exodus 17. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children with thirst? Is the Lord with us or not, they said. They're calling God's goodness and faithfulness into question. And they demanded, God, prove yourself to us. Do a miracle on the spot. And Moses would later say to Israel, that's the sin of testing God. Calling God's faithfulness into question and demanding a sign as a prerequisite to trusting Him. That's what Israel did in Moses' day. That's what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. He's quoting one part of the Bible to try and induce Jesus to commit a sin against another part of the Bible. To, to follow this guidance to jump would be to test God. But Jesus refuses to play this game because that's a sin. Now today I think we can test God in, in three ways. First, as Satan tempted Jesus, many Christians today also seem to believe it's acceptable to create dangerous situations, imperiling our lives or health, and then just expecting God to bail us out. This is very common in some charismatic circles. Tragically, more Orthodox churches, I think, have flirted with this same problem during the pandemic. Handle snakes. Drink poison. Ignore COVID. God will protect you. Be careful. Putting God to the test. It's sin. Second, people sometimes put God to the test by refusing medical care for themselves or their children. Insisting that God will heal me through faith. I don't need medicine. Refusing human help. Not, reali not realizing God is a God of means. God uses human means and medical means sometimes to accomplish His good purposes. All the scientific knowledge and medicine we have in our world today are gifts from God. It's common grace. It's, it's sin not to avail ourselves of God's goodness. It's wrong to reject His, God's gr His grace. And it's even worse to say to God, I reject your common grace and I demand you perform a sign on my command. Third, we, we put God to the test anytime we demand that God serve us as a precondition to faith. When we say to God, I really want marriage, or I really want a child, or I really want a better job, or I really want money, or better health, and until you give me this, I will not follow you. That's sin, demanding that God perform as a precondition to our trust. Friends, God commands and we obey. It's not the other way around. God does not do tricks on command for us. God does not conform reality to our agenda. We are to conform our lives to His agenda. 
God tests us. We don't get to test him. But Satan says to Jesus, put God to the test. And Jesus says, no way. But Satan's not done yet. As we come now to our fourth point in which Satan tempted Jesus to enjoy worldly glory by rejecting the worship of the Father. And I think he tempts us in that way too, even to this day. Having failed in his first two temptations, Satan now lays his cards on the table. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, of course, there's no mountain on earth which has a high enough vantage point to see the rest of the globe. Apparently, Jesus was taken to a mountain and Satan showed him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. But more than that, a vision of the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. This is the ultimate in human splendor and power. Verse 9, And Satan said to Jesus, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now notice this time Satan doesn't say to Jesus, If you are the Son of God. He has abandoned that line of attack. He has not been able to leverage Jesus' power or obedience to the Scriptures to turn him against the Father. And so now Satan offers something quite brazen. Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. We saw at the end of last week when the Father acclaims Jesus, he uses the language of Isaiah 42, which shows that Jesus is the, the long-promised servant of God, the one who will die uh, to, to redeem uh, people for God, uh, vicariously dying for sinners. That's God's plan. The, the, the path to the crown runs through the cross. But now Satan offers Jesus a different plan and a different kingdom, the kingdom of this fallen world. Jesus, he says, you don't have to go through the cross. You can be the king of kings another way. You don't have to face rejection and betrayal. You can be universally loved. You can have the glory and not the suffering. You can have the power and not the pain. If only you will worship me. Satan offers Jesus all this world has to offer. And notice that Jesus does not dispute that this is within Satan's power to offer. Because Satan does rule over this fallen world and all the nations in it. And Satan wickedly offers that glory and power to Jesus if Jesus will renounce his divine sonship, if the Christ will choose to become the Antichrist. But Jesus is not taken in. Matthew 4.10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 6.13. Only God is worthy of our worship and our unqualified obedience. No other master can claim that, especially not the deceiver. And with that, Jesus dismisses Satan. And here I think we get a glimpse of Jesus' true power. In Jude verse 9, we read that the archangel Michael, when he contended with the devil, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Even the mightiest angels don't address Satan directly like this. We certainly should not be foolish enough to challenge Satan or his demons with words presupposing that we have some kind of power. But Jesus can and does directly rebuke and dismiss Satan here because he is the Son of God. Now, I think this temptation may seem at first a bit harder for us to apply to ourselves than others. We probably can understand wanting to have a life different than the life we have. We can probably understand not wanting to wait on God's timing or putting God to the test. But receiving supreme power and glory over this world, that's a temptation that probably hasn't come our way, right? And my guess is the reason we haven't faced that one is that God knows most of us are not strong enough to pass that test. And yet, 
while the glory of all the kingdoms of the world has not passed before our eyes, I think there is a great temptation to cherish and pursue what this world loves at the expense of worshiping and obeying the Lord. What does our world most highly prize? Beauty and riches and celebrity and power and mansions and sports cars and vacations and early retirement. And none of those things are bad in themselves, but the world worships them. Do you hear that temptation calling to you? Maybe not the red carpet, but to live your life pursuing with the chief goal, that of acquiring what the world wants. I think that's a minor version of what Satan offers Jesus here. But friends, I would tell you the price of admission to the world's table is usually very high. And to receive the world's goodies, usually you have to play the world's game. You usually don't get to the top by worshiping Jesus. Usually you have to wind up following the pattern of the evil one, living as he does in rebellion, functionally worshiping Satan. But Jesus warns us very clearly in Matthew 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? All the glories of the world aren't worth it. Because this life doesn't last forever. Eternity comes, and with it comes a reckoning. And friends, binding yourself to the glitter of this fallen world is folly because you can't take it with you. And because 1 Corinthians 7 tells us the present form of this world is passing away, this fallen world system will not long endure. So instead, put your hope in the kingdom which will never pass away, whose glories are real and endless. Jesus will say later in this book, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Fix your heart and your hope and your affections on the Lord. That is the path to true lasting glory. And so the test ends. And unlike Israel, which failed in the wilderness, Christ has prevailed. And we see that now in our fifth and final point, in which we see that Jesus teaches us to resist the devil and he will flee from us and to submit ourselves to God, which is James 4, 7. And that's what we see in our last verse. Now we read Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him. Here we see an important principle about temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is our strategy in spiritual warfare. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul tells believers, walk in good works, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, walk in love, walk as children of light. Look carefully how you walk. But then in the last chapter, when he talks about facing demonic attack, he never uses the word walk. Instead, he repeatedly tells us to stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm. Stand, therefore. There's a sense in which spiritual warfare is not about going on the offensive. It's about standing firm. It's about resisting in place and keeping our feet under us and ducking the enemy's blows while wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, clutching them until the enemy, who is very mighty, decides to retreat because he's not making any headway. That is our strategy, friends. It's not pronouncing bindings on Satan. It's not performing Hollywood-style exorcisms. It's not playing ghostbusters. It's not acting sinfully presumptuously in the face of dark spiritual powers. Our goal is simply to keep standing when the onslaught comes, knowing that if we resist long enough, eventually they will withdraw. But that doesn't mean they'll withdraw permanently. They return. Just as Satan's retreat here is not the last time Jesus will face temptation. Luke 4 says at this point in his narrative, 
And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satanic temptation will return to attack Jesus. We see this later in the form of Peter, who moments after acclaiming Jesus as the Son of God would hear Jesus say that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No cross, Jesus, only glory. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. It's the third temptation all over again. Or at Gethsemane, when the disciples want to fight the guards who've come to arrest Jesus. Jesus could call any angelic help and enjoy physical protection. He says it. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Or as He hung on the cross and His enemies surrounded Him, jeering as He gasped for breath, what did they say? Matthew 27. If you were the Son of God, doesn't that sound familiar? If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. Use your power. Escape the Father's plan. It's the same temptation again. And yet in all these temptations, and more than these, Jesus was without sin. He faced the ultimate challenges in this life beyond anything we ever will be put to us. And He persevered and He prevailed. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what does the author of Hebrews say as a result of that in the next verse? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in, in, to, to help in time of need. In times of temptation and testing, we have a Lord who is a very present help in times of trouble, who understands what we're going through, who is there to help, and who by His intercession and His holy word and His spirit has given us the resources that we need to prevail as he did. He spoke through Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In his faithfulness, Christ promises we will only face temptations that by God's grace we can overcome. And there will always be a way out. God may allow us or lead us into a test of temptation, but God will never leave us in a situation in which our only choice is sin. There's always a path out. Whether it's the path Jesus took here of standing firm using the, the Word of God, or whether it's the path Paul often said. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Flee the love of money. Flee youthful passions. Either way, there's always a way of escape because of Christ's faithfulness to us. He has enabled us to follow His example and overcome temptation. And a big part of that is the battle for the mind. Temptation works on us because it makes us think we're going to really enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin and there aren't going to be any consequences. And that obedience is boring. And it'll make us miss out on the real thrills of life. But if we immerse our minds in God's word, when temptation comes, we won't just see the bait, we'll see the hook with it. We'll remember the truth that sin kills and we'll remember the truth that obedience leads to something better than the fleeting false pleasures of sin. And we see that in the last clause of our passage. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan quoted Psalm 91 saying, angels will take care of you, Jesus. And guess what? After the battle, they did. 
Satan said, Jesus, you're hungry, make some bread. This word ministering we see in Matthew 4 is often used in the context of food. They fed him. Satan offered shortcuts, false pleasures. Jesus held out and got the better portion. As Jesus will say later in this book, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus did. He didn't opt for the shortcut, the sucker play, the temptation. And as a result, he passed the test. He showed what was in his heart. Indeed, he does love the Father with his total being. He loves his word and he has indeed been shown to be the Son of God. And now he's going back to Galilee. We'll see next week to begin his ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God, a kingdom much better than the kingdoms of this fallen world that Satan offered him, a kingdom Jesus will win by his obedience, a kingdom that will let Jesus say at the end of this book, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot better than what Satan offered him. Friends, Jesus is our example in overcoming temptation. Jesus shows us we prevail by knowing God's word and not just disconnected snippets of text but by understanding their meaning and their context. Jesus shows us that we can trust God, that He leads us through trials to reveal our faith and to grow us, and that He is faithful to us in that. That as we respond to trials with obedience, we will learn that God is better than the false pleasures of sin. And we'll see that He has equipped us to obey and defeat temptation and enjoy victory by Christ's Spirit, by Christ's Word, and by Christ's own example. So let's pray.